The Labour Party is trying to work out what's going wrong. It's in the throes of a leadership race and conducting a review into its poor performance in the last election. Insight has been speaking to people in the electorates, former politicians, unionists and academics about what the party can do to reverse its decline in popularity. Most elections could be likened to fairgrounds, full of competing attractions. But 2014 had more sideshows than usual. There was dirty politics, a big-spending internet millionaire, a ministerial resignation and world-famous whistleblowers beamed in from London and Moscow. But instead of the Labour Party dominating the fairground like a carnival tout, it choked. You have worked so hard for what is right and good and decent in this country. You You have worked to make this country the fairest, most decent society in the world. You have upheld the finest traditions of the Labour Party and the Labour movement. You are incredible. You are courageous. You are hardworking. You are Labour! When the applause died down, it became apparent this was Labour's worst result since 1922. I'm Catherine Hutton, and this insight explores whether Labour's core supporters have disappeared, or whether the problems lie in areas such as leadership and policy. Does the party need to make fundamental changes, or just tinker at the edges? The defeat has prompted plenty of comment and analysis in the media, and much soul-searching by the party. Debates such as those held by the Fabian Society have tried to untangle the reason behind Labour's defeat. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this uh, Fabian Society event, uh, narratives of the 2014 election. Uh, One of those on the panel, political commentator Colin James, told a packed hall near the Parliament precinct in Wellington that elections aren't won or lost on individual policies, but rather emotions how people are feeling. Mr James believes the influences behind Labour's defeat boil down to the economy, a stable government and John Key's overwhelming popularity. The economy in an election is household finances. Household finances were okay, sort of, modestly, getting better uh, in middle New Zealand uh, and it looked as though next the following year would be uh, better as well. Uh, there was a stable-looking, competent-sounding government with defined support. And that, for, that was versus a fuzzy or non-existent alternative government after the evolving Labour-Green coalition was dismantled uh, and in any case uh, required KG Winston Peters. The third point is that National had a macro personality. John Key is not your simple popular leader. He has a matey one of usness. He talks New Zealand. Election campaigns are increasingly presidential in style, with the campaign and media attention focused on party leaders. This was particularly true of National, its billboards prominently featuring its leader John Key in every electorate. A television producer and former political journalist Richard Harmon told the same meeting Labour's campaign was blighted by a string of errors made by the leader, David Cunliffe. He attacked John Key for living in an expensive house in Parnell, only to have to admit that his own house was valued at $2.5 million in Auckland's most expensive suburb, Hearn Bay. There was the Dong Hua Lu letter, the confusion over whether it was his grandfather or great-uncle who'd won medals in the First World War, the apology for being a man, etc., etc. You don't have to watch too many episodes of West Wing to work out what's going on here.
He says David Cunliffe either wasn't getting advice, or if he was, he wasn't listening to it. And that meant he spent far too much time in the media space explaining or even apologising for what had been going on. He lost the high ground, and Labour's critics, both internal and external, were able to contest it. But are those thoughts echoed out in the electorates? The suburb of Avondale in Auckland's west is home to the popular markets at the Avondale Racecourse. Every Sunday, a small city of tents pops up, selling everything from fruit and veggies, bric-a-brac, clothes and kids' toys, to computers, plants and furniture. Mr Cunliffe, the local MP, won a 5,000 vote majority at the election, but lost the party vote to National. But voters at the market weren't convinced by his leadership. Although he presented very well against John Key, I just don't know whether he really... I think Labour is traditionally sort of working people, and I don't know if he came over as necessarily in that. Cunliffe didn't do himself well when he was on John Campbell, and his wife sort of took over. That sort of... Yeah, he kind of didn't really sort of... um, didn't, I, personally, I didn't see him doing much for his own his own backbone. A lot of people don't have, didn't have faith in Cunliffe. Um, I just I don't feel he had much of a presence. Many political experts believe that to win an election under MMP and take control here in Parliament, you need to capture Middle New Zealand and the issues they care about: mortgages, jobs, kids. If Labour is to boost its support from a historic low of just over 25% to the required 40%, they argue that the party needs to appeal to that group. September's result wasn't just a single loss for Labour. It represented a six-year defeat and a repeated failure to connect with voters. And to give you an idea of the enormity of the task it faces to win back public support, the gap between National and Labour is 22% the largest it's been since 1935. Mark Goshi served as a Labour MP between 1996 and 2008, including four years as a Cabinet Minister. Having been involved in elections for almost 40 years, he was impressed by the grassroots campaigning at this election. Northland, for instance, with Willow Jean Prime, I thought she ran an amazingly good campaign, and her numbers um, showed that that campaign was effective both for her and Calvin Davis. Uh, in Auckland, um, new seats like Upper Harbour uh, and Herman Retzlaff, again a first-time candidate, Jenny Salesa in Manukau East, Claire Zabo on the North Shore, um, Carmel Sepuloni coming back in Calston and Tamati Coffey down in Rotorua. I just observed and um, watched those campaigns and what they what they showed is that the grassroots volunteer support, uh, when it's used well and when it's inspired, can run a campaign that money can't buy. Mark Goshi says from what he saw, the result wasn't due to the campaign, but he does suggest the caucus hasn't been performing as well as it should have. For the last six years, I don't think we've seen a caucus that's firing on all cylinders. Quite often, even a Labour activist like myself would struggle to think, who's the spokesperson on that particular issue that should be on the radio or on the TV or in the media? taking the government to task. And I recall back to my time in opposition in 96, 99, there was a thorough, well-organised strategy around testing the government's every move, pointing out to the public what was wrong with what they were doing. 
And at the end of that period, the the public, if you like, had had enough of that government uh, that had been in place for near on nine years at that point. That bickering hasn't gone down well with voters, who say it's a turn-off. They're bickering too much amongst themselves, you know, to actually um, form a good party that looks like they've got some direction and going somewhere. Um, I think there's, there's too many hardheads there. They're not really a team. They want the same thing, but they want, the, want it their own individual way. It also enabled the Greens to fill the void as the voice of opposition. Successfully challenging the government and often receiving the same or more media exposure than Labour. But not all of those who've had long-standing associations with the Labour Party blame its hierarchy. Helen Kelly is the President of the Council of Trade Unions, which represents 350,000 members in 40 unions. She says she's tired of people blaming the caucus although she does concede they've had problems. A lack of size and resource, and that always puts everybody under pressure. And, you know, they got smaller last election, and they're even smaller now, so they're used to being a, a big party that's got a lot of resource, and they haven't worked out how to utilise their resource collectively. Obviously, they've had difficulties around their leadership issues. They haven't trusted the leader or been confident, but I don't think they've undermined the leader. And I think when you get into a lack of direction, um, you start getting this attitude that, you know, what do we need to succeed? This is sort of a desperation. I think they've become uh, too media-driven, being driven by what they think the public expect, which they're being told by the media, rather than using their own instincts and their own principles. But she says Labour needs to look at its relationships with other parties under the MMP system, which favours the broader base of representation. They should have been uh, working better with the Greens. I think they should have been working better with New Zealand First. And it's a difficult... Um, road to, to you know divide and, and to show because obviously you're also in competition with those parties but in opposition they've had six years to get this stuff out. I mean there's no point saying what happened in the election campaign, this is a six year failure and what they should have been doing through that period of time is um, you know, developing common campaign ideas and issues and working together and collaborating and being a strong opposition as a whole. Colin James is another who supports the idea of relationship building and says Labour should have worked out a durable, tight coalition government in waiting. If Labour wants to generate a majority because the interface, there's a voting interface between Labour and the Greens where people can move between the two parties, it's going to need to lock the Greens in and develop what was developing under David Shearer, a government in waiting. He says this was something that the party's former leader, David Shearer, was trying to do. But Mr Shearer says while he did work with both the Greens and New Zealand First during his time as leader, he doesn't accept that the failure to present a unified and stable opposition cost the party votes. I believe that we could have done better with with the Greens, but ultimately the Greens got 10%. They crashed. Uh, Well, they didn't crash, but they didn't do any better than... certainly did a lot worse than they had been polling. He cites the example of a joint power policy released in April last year that resulted in a drop in Labour's ratings, as an example that greater cooperation doesn't automatically translate to more support. Tracing it back, I'm not convinced that that, that going out together with the Greens was, um, despite what all of the commentators were saying, isn't this, you know, the left commentators, isn't that this wonderful? I'm not sure that it necessarily grew anybody's vote. But a former Labour Party president, Jim Anderton, is less concerned about relationships with other parties than Labour's links with what should have been its own people. 
He argues the reason the party is failing to resonate with voters is due in part to the fact its membership base is now so narrowly focused it's essentially talking to itself. When I was president of the Labour Party, we had 100,000 members. Now, plus about 350,000 affiliate members. So that's getting on to half a million people. Not all of those affiliates were, were, were genuine committed members of the Labour Party, that's true, but still it, it was a large base and the membership certainly was committed. Now that meant that Labour had its roots deep into the communities of New Zealand right throughout the country, in rural New Zealand as well as provincial and, and the major cities. Now if you look at the, the membership base of the Labour Party now, very much reduced affiliate membership and probably about 7,000 members. I, I think that would be generous. Mike Treen heads the Unite Union, which represents about 7,000 members who work in the fast food industry or for call centres, security and hotels. He says Labour has been captured by urban liberals, like working professionals, whose moral agenda has come to dominate the party's identity, at a time when there have been significant changes in employment legislation. He's not saying issues like women's rights and homosexual law reform aren't important, but the party needs policies which empower working people and deal with issues that are important to them, like wages and jobs. I think those issues are reasonably popular, even among working people. Those issues are, are sort of popular, and this, you know, this, and National Party actually supports most of those liberal sort of agenda stuff now anyway. It's come to dominate the identity of the party, and that's why they need to re-emphasise the social and economic side of their demands. Richard Harman told the audience at the Fabian Society debate that the party needs to look at what and who it stands for. The first Labour government in 1935 was elected on the proposition that it would use the state to improve the living standards and restore the dreams of that huge number of people whose lives had been destroyed by the Depression. But the fact is that by the time of the next election, the people who voted for the first, the first time in 1987, and therefore people who have only ever voted in a globalised New Zealand, will be nearly 50. I think they see the world very differently from unemployed workers in 1935. And I wonder whether Labour really understands and reflects that district, or does it too easily comfort itself by returning to the heroic and romantic narratives from its own past? Mr Anderton says the result from last year's Christchurch East by-election shows the party can capture voter support in today's political landscape. We had policies that were relevant for the people of that area, uh, that we found out what they wanted. They wanted some housing uh, solutions. They wanted the um, insurance companies dealt to. They wanted their roads fixed and so on and so on. Now, the Labor Party came up with policies for those people. Um, they were given a strong organisational base and they smashed the National Party. That was one year ago and the National Party virtually gave up. He says the party should be targeting the so-called missing million, those who didn't get on the roll or bother to vote. That's almost twice the number of people who voted for Labor. So um, the problem then is that you have to ask why did Labor not get out that vote? Because it's dollars to donuts that a fair percentage of it, not all, but a fair percentage of that non-vote would have been inclined to vote Labor if they had reason for it. The 
this election, several organisations, including the Council of Trade Unions and the Electoral Commission, ran campaigns to try and get people to vote. What impact those campaigns had is not known, but voter turnout rose from 74% of the population in 2011 to 78% this election. But Mr Shearer isn't convinced it's a strategy worth pursuing. Frankly, it doesn't work. Uh, it's much better to persuade uh, a voter who always votes, who might have been voting for National, to come across to Labour, and therefore National loses one vote and Labour gains one vote. I mean, it's again, it's basic maths. Uh, it, it is about being a broad-based, inclusive, centre-left party. A lifelong member of the Labour Party, Mark Goshi, says the recent result shows the party still connects with its core voters, but it needs to build broader support if it wants to win that middle ground. One of the things that they perhaps haven't recognised is that there's a baby boom generation my age who are working uh, in all sorts of fields, and they may be in uh, wage-earning jobs um, right through to, as you say, uh, consultants, contractors, self-employed, business people, etc., uh, some of those policies that were very prominent, like the lifting of the pension age and the capital gains tax, would not have gone down well with the baby boom generation, who at this point in our, in our history are very influential in the voting booth. Mr Shearer is among those voicing concerns about the party's failure to connect with middle New Zealand, office workers, contractors, tradespeople. I'm concerned that the party itself uh, needs to have a an outlook to be a party that is a broad-based party as it always has. And that means from, you know, people who are, in a sense, if you, you know, they use the old terms of sort of working class through to middle class, it's a centre-left party. It needs to be broad. Um, and I'm, what I'm seeing and what we, what we know from the past three elections is that uh, the middle has moved away from us. So the people in the sort of the, whatever, 60,000 to 160,000 household income kind of group um, have, have diminished. But some of those further to the left of the party disagree. Helen Kelly rejects suggestions that Labour should be differentiating between blue-collar workers and contractors. Lots of white men and contractors are struggling day to day and are not middle. Actually, they are going to work, being fingerprinted, being pushed, being hurt, are being underpaid, contractors as well. And um, that actually what we have in common, well, they have as much in common with a Pacific Island cleaner at Wellington Hospital who's worrying about the new law coming through and replacing her as everybody. And to divide and to suggest that they've got separate interests, in my view, is not a strong uh, platform for which to build on. I don't agree with him at all, actually. And I don't think he experiences those workers. I think he makes them up. Stephanie Rogers is a blogger and communications officer at the Engineering, Printing and Manufacturing Union. She believes that changes are needed with the way Labour organises its people and gets its message out, rather than the message itself. The problem is it does sound very cynical, it's very political. It is a very slightly conniving thing to do, to say we're going to get the messages that's, that are going to resonate with people. But I'm biased and I think that we'll be OK because we know that our narratives are going to actually be based in good, solid left-wing principles. And we just need to figure out how we coordinate our commentators, our union members, our political wings, to get those narratives sorted and to start just hammering them and challenging all of the accepted ideas that we're getting all the time that are just being reinforced again and again and again by the dirty politics machine. 
The past two decades have seen considerable change in the country's labour laws, affecting the union movement which the party is aligned to. In 1991, compulsory unionism was abolished by a national government, reducing the number of union members to a low of about 300,000 in 1999. Following the election of a Labour government that year, regulations were eased, and unions began to rebuild their memberships. Since then, membership has grown to about 365,000, or about 16% of the workforce. But what impact, if any, have these changes had on the Labour Party's vote? Steve Blumenfeld is a senior lecturer at Victoria University and the director of the Centre for Labour, Employment and Work. He has analysed data from the New Zealand Election Survey which looks at the way union members have voted every election since 1990. In terms of those that voted for uh, Labour versus National in the 1990 election, again before MMP, before uh, we uh, moved away from complete comp or from compulsory unionism, uh, at least in any occupation or industry. You can see that uh, in terms of how union members actually voted then, it was pretty evenly split between Labour and National. In the 2002 election, which Labour won by a landslide, the survey shows overwhelming union support for Labour, while a fraction of union members supported National. But in 2008, the voting patterns returned to those of 1990, with more union members supporting Labour than National, but only by a margin of about 10,000 votes. Dr Blumenfeld says the results show union members don't necessarily vote for Labour, and didn't do so even before the introduction of MMP. It does make some difference when uh, union members vote for Labour, but again, union members make up such a small share now of the electorate uh, that uh, how union members vote is not really crucial to uh, either party or any party. If Labour can't guarantee it will get the backing of union members, what about support in traditional areas like South Auckland? Labour won the party vote in just five of the 64 general electorates, Dunedin North, Kelston, and three in South Auckland, Mangere, Manukau East and Manurewa. The Otara market on Saturday morning is held in a car park, wedged between a shopping centre and the Manukau Institute of Technology. Like the Avondale markets, it features a similar collection of stalls selling everything from carpet to perfume to sunglasses and hardware, as well as an array of fruit and vegetable stands. This is Labour's heartland. To me, I got a good job anyway. I can vote anyone. I can vote national. I can vote Labour. Because, you know, the island people, they need some, you know, cheaper things. Um, there are a few policies there that I agree with. Uh, but ultimately, they're my best chance to kick national out. <laughs> For Arsio and Mangere, for Labour, and then I, uh, I picked the National for a party. Okay, why? Why do you? Why why do you I, I like John Key, and I like um, in Mangere, um, Arsio. He's um, he's always everywhere. He's a community guy, so we see him every day. We see him everywhere with these big functions. Especially the young ones of the of Manuko East. You see them on the road. Wiping uh, uh, motor car screens and that, uh, they shouldn't be there. They should be given an opportunity to have uh, go through uh, studies and get jobs. But that's why that's why I put my work for, for this lady for labour 
if she can, because she's an island, this boy's an islander, and she can help this boy get a job and get them off the street. Plus, there's a lot of unemployed um, young ones that's living in Otara. Policies were much more aligned to the areas in which I live. Um, and because Natural is selling off um, state housing as fast as it can go, and we need more housing for the students I used to teach, and big groups of them in their houses, um, they're there because they can't afford anywhere else to live and it makes life difficult for everybody. Did you vote for Labour at the last election? No, I did not. Why not? Um, they seem weak. The influence of the Pacifica vote is reflected in Parliament, with a record seven MPs, five for Labour and two for National. Fa'ama Tua Tina Pereira, a leader in the Samoan community, says although support for Labour is still strong, increasingly that has been questioned. He says the days of the Pacifica vote being exclusively Labour are over, with voters considering National or New Zealand first. The dawn of an examination of whether or not Pacifica will continue to be in the Labour space is now starting. It's not a flood yet, but there are sure telltale signs there that the community is thinking again. Social reforms like the nicknamed Smacking Bill and the introduction of same-sex marriage haven't helped. But Mr Pereira says there's also a feeling in the Pacifica communities that Labour is taking them for granted. I think the Samoan community would like to see a much more um, serious attempt by Labour um, to take its, its vote more seriously. I mean, there is a perception they're taking our communities for granted because obviously, you know, if you put, if you put a dog in Mangat and put a red ribbon around it, our people always vote. But, you know, you know, uh, so, so our communities are saying, well, you can't continue to take us for granted. You know, we need to take, take us seriously and we need to reflect our support. What do you think they need to be doing more of? Well, I think they need to make sure that our people are in the leadership, our people are in parliament, take leadership roles within the party, you know, in the front bench or some major you know, uh, portfolios around social welfare, um, economic development and finance. A leader in the Tongan community, Malino Maka, says Labour could and should have done more to explain key policies like the capital gains tax and raising the retirement age. Yeah, because I, I think some of them, they, they didn't understand there's going to be a transition period. You know, before that, uh, 60, 67 come into, um, uh, they, they just felt it's going to happen overnight. You know, some of them is sort of kind of looking forward to, um, to the retirement and some of them thinking about going back to the islands, you know. And, and some of them is felt that um, it's really extra two years for them to wait. But the Pacifica communities weren't the only ones left in the dark, as Richard Harmon explains. 140 specific policies, and some, such as the monetary policy, laden with complexity and opacity. And that complexity of policy was not helped by a failure to explain to the electorate what the payoff for them was. What would a tangible benefit of capital gains tax be? How would reducing take-home pay to put more of it into KiwiSaver so that exporters could benefit through a lot lower dollar impact the average working family? Mr Harmon says even the name, a capital gains tax, was wrong and suggests calling it a speculation tax may have won greater approval. Jim Anderton questions whether it's a good idea to pursue such policies, particularly while in opposition. If you want to change 
uh, those kind of structures, you've got to work really hard at it and probably actually from government where you've got some political capital to spend. It's very hard from opposition to try and start telling people that, uh, you know, they'll believe that their house will be will have capital gains on it. You can tell them how many times you like they won't, but they won't believe you in opposition. And if you tell them you're going to change the age of superannuation, they think you're going to take it away from them tomorrow. That's the reality of it, and you can't do it that way. So is it time to take down the portrait of Michael Joseph Savage, the first Labour Prime Minister and considered by many to be the architect of the welfare state? Mr James says Labour is not alone with what it's encountering. Uh, All social democratic parties for quite some time uh, have had uh, a bother about uh, the degree to which, uh, what their base is in society and how big their base is. So there's nothing special to New Zealand Labour about this, certainly in Australian Labour, British Labour, the German Social Democrats, the French Socialists, etc., the American Democrats. Uh, it's all a matter of crisis of, uh, of representation and, and, and to some extent as a result of that, the identity. Why? Why is it so... Because of our changing society. But he warns the solutions to Labour's problems won't be headline news, but rather long-term, back-breaking work. He suggests a return to first principles and says a concerted effort needs to be made to rebuild the party's membership. It needs to find a way of building its membership to multiples of what it is uh, and have that membership spread through wider ranges of the community than it does now. Mr Anderton says the party needs to look at what's worked and why. If you want to know how this is done, ask the people who've done it. There have been some successes. Stuart Nash is a success. Calvin Davis is a success. There are a number of Labour MPs that have very strong organisations and very powerful support and very good community contacts. Now, ask those people how they are working and emulate it in the next-door neighbour electorates and, and, and outwards from there and build the base on the strengths you've got. They've got very strong electorate organisations in many areas. Build outwards from there. That's how you do it. It's no, there's no miracle here. You don't sort of wave a wand. But if Labour wants to broaden its appeal, Mr Shearer also sounds a warning. If you say that you're going to take the party to the left and you start going down the polls, as inevitably you're going to, and I said this to David on a couple of occasions, and then you start tacking to the right, in a sense to say somehow we need to be more, now we need to be more centre, you, you come across as insincere. You, know, you come across as phony, basically. And, and as a result of that, what happens is that uh, you, you end up losing on both ends. But what do voters think Labour should do? We need something like uh, Helen Clark. Somebody like Helen Clark, thanks. Why would she go? She's from ladies. She's an iron lady. There's no one can beat her, but we're waiting for that person to come. To level with it, then we are on the game. I think they got to pull up their socks and uh, no? do something about leadership yeah. and control of leadership. I would like to see somebody as strong as Helen Clark or David Longy back again. I can't see anybody there at the moment and it distresses me a little. I'm Catherine Hutton and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radioNZ.co.nz or send a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented this programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley, with technical production by Sean D. Wilson.